We'll be looking tonight at 1 Kings chapter 13, verses 1 through 10. This was a, a bit of a hard decision because really all 34 verses make one point as a unit together, um, but it's a long chapter, and I, I think we'll save some of some of that for uh, next week, Lord willing. But we'll look at the first 10 verses tonight. Uh, next week, we'll be looking at the central theme of all 34 together, which is really a, a question, how, how important really is uh, keeping God's commands? What does God think about the importance of obedience? And uh, we'll be looking at that more uh, next week. But this week, verses 1 through 10, 1 Kings 1 through 10, this is the word of our God. And behold, a man of God went from Judah to Bethel by the word of the Lord, and Jeroboam stood by the altar to burn incense. Then he cried out against the, against the altar by the word of the Lord and said, O altar, altar, thus says the Lord. Behold, a child, Josiah by name, shall be born to the house of David, and on you he shall sacrifice the priests of the high places who burn incense on you, and men's bones shall be burned on you. And he gave a sign the same day, saying, This is the sign which the Lord has spoken. Surely the altar shall split apart, and the ashes on it shall be poured out. So it came to pass when the king, king Jeroboam heard the saying of the man of God who cried out against the altar in Bethel, that he stretched out his hand from the altar, saying, Arrest him! Then his hand, which he stretched out toward him, withered, so that he could not pull it back to himself. The altar also was split apart, and the ashes poured out from the altar, according to the sign which the man of God had given by the word of the Lord. Then the king answered and said to the man of God, Please, entreat the favor of the Lord your God, and pray for me that my hand may be restored to me. So the man of God entreated the Lord, and the king's hand was restored to him and became as before. Then the king said to the man of God, Come home with me and refresh yourself, and I will give you a reward. But the man of God said to the king, If you were to give me half your house, I would not go in with you, nor would I eat bread nor drink water in this place. For so it was commanded me by the word of the Lord, saying, You shall not eat bread, nor drink water, nor return by the same way you came. So he went another way, and did not return by the way he came to Bethel. The word of our God. Let's pray. Father, we ask that uh, these events so long ago would not only be known to us as a story, but that we would learn what you would teach us from these accounts. Father, instruct our hearts today to fear and love you and to honor you in all that we do. We ask in Jesus' name. Amen. This passage presents us with a prophet from Judah showing up in northern Israel to confront Jeroboam. Uh, we've seen that Jeroboam split uh, not simply took what God had given him, these tribes, 
in the north. But he said, well, that's not good enough if, if these tribes are traveling down to Jerusalem in the south to David's son to worship God three times a year at the feast days. Then they're going to eventually say, well, wait a second, I'm celebrating the Passover with the son of David. I'm celebrating the, the Feast of Booths, and the booth next to me is the, is the king's booth, the house of David. So why am I worshiping with David's and, uh, descendant and not having him as my king? That doesn't make sense. And so Jeroboam said, well, we need worship up in the north. We're going to make convenient worship. You don't have to travel as far. So he put uh, tabernacles and and uh, and altars in the north in Dan, which is the furthest north, and he put one uh, in the south at Bethel, which is just a few miles from the border away from Jerusalem, a few miles past that. So, you know, easy. You can cut your commute time in half. You don't have to travel to Jerusalem. You can just go to Bethel. And then he put high places on every hill, which is where all the pagans had worshipped previously. And he's saying, you can have the the comfort of how the Canaanites worshipped in their own backyards. And you can do that too. Then he established priests from all the tribes when God had said it should only be from the Levites. And in fact, uh, it's clear from the last verse of chapter 12 that one of the things that he did, not only did he appoint priests from all the other tribes, but he said, well, why shouldn't I be a priest as well? And so we find him doing the work of a priest, burning incense at the altar himself, wanting to be a king priest. That's something that David's son can't do in Jerusalem. And won't that be an impressive way to have more power in my own territory? In that context, then, this prophet comes from Judah. And I don't know about you, but my first thought when I just sat down with my Bible a few weeks ago and started looking at this chapter one of my first thoughts was, where are the northern prophets? Where are the prophets from the ten tribes? Who is speaking out against this in Israel as a whole? Why does someone have to come from Judah? They're silent, seemingly apathetic, or maybe just not there, except we're going to find next week in the next part of this chapter that there's at least one prophet in the north and he's not that far from Bethel, but he's not doing anything. Well, what, what might be a reason for a prophet not to do anything? Well, if it's a true prophet, they can only speak the word of the Lord if the Lord gives them his word to speak. Otherwise, they can preach from the word of God he's given previously. And sometimes the prophets did that. They were essentially preachers of the book of Deuteronomy. but but they can't bring new revelation unless God puts it in their mouth. And here God sends someone with a word in his mouth from the Lord. It's significant that he's from Judah because God is saying to Jeroboam, whatever you think you've accomplished up here in the north, whatever new religion you think you're inventing that you're still trying to tie in to my name, my word comes from where I dwell. And I still dwell in the temple at Jerusalem. Jeroboam had been given a lot, but God hadn't moved away from Jerusalem just because he had taken ten tribes away from David. And so he is making a point here 
my word still comes from my temple. And it has something to say about your false religion. What, what is the word that God is speaking through this prophet? Well, it's about a son of David coming. What more insulting thing could be said to Jeroboam than that? You were afraid that if the people went down there, if you were faithful to me and the people went down there, that they would kill you and take David's son back. But because you're not faithful, I'm going to send David's son up here. And you're going to suffer anyway. Your bones will burn on the altar. We have David's son listed, and it's not just some generic claim. You, you think of a um, palm reader or something, and they have their, their, or their crystal ball, and they say something like, I see a man in your future. Right? It, it, then you can claim whatever you want down the road. But here, here's a name. 300 years before Josiah was born, God says, a son of David, Josiah by name. And this child, an added insult, right? He's not going to be an older man, a mighty warrior. He's going to be a young pup who hasn't proven himself in battle. He hasn't done great exploits. And he's going to show up and he is going to demolish this false religion. He's going to purify the worship of God. That's the emphasis here. And so Josiah will come and he will kill all the false priests who are still laboring. You realize God warns them here. And they're going to ignore God's warning for 300 years. This is the blindness of our sin, isn't it? With all the warnings God gives us in his word. And one day on the day of judgment, one thing we, we don't hear when Christ gives us these little glimpses at the day of judgment, when people stand before his throne, you don't hear anyone saying, but how was I supposed to know? Because he's spoken in his word and he's told us, they in Jeroboam's day heard and for 300 years they kept volunteering to be priests at these high places, even though God had said, you're going to die for doing that. Josiah comes along. Josiah has a tender heart for God. And he goes and he cleanses the temple, which had become a, a place of false worship as well. And, and he, he cleanses Jerusalem from false worship. And then he, he thinks to himself, even though Judah is my territory, and, and he never in his life tried to lay claim to the other tribes. He didn't try to lay claim to that other territory we don't see him doing a military expansion effort. The only thing he does in northern Israel has nothing to do with his own kingship. It has to do with one thing. The true religion of the king, God. And he goes up into the north and he does literally what we find here. He destroys the wicked priests on this very altar. He destroys this altar. He breaks down the high places and the idols. He uh, cleanses the worship of northern Israel. And they dig up the bones of those who had served as priests or worshipped at this place. And they burn them on this very altar. That sounds very uh, strange to us. But God's making a point there. 
for 300 years, it looked like they got away with it. But their bones will not rest in the promised land until the resurrection. Their bones are dug up from the grave. They're put on this altar. We're going to think about that a little bit more next week because there are some bones which are left to rest in Josiah's day. Those who had not bowed the knee and had not worshipped the false gods, their bones are left at peace in the promised land. A testimony to the eternal security and rest which true believers have in Jesus Christ. But Josiah will dig up these bones, and so all who thought they were getting away with it for 300 years, it's like their very existence, their memory is being erased. That's God's point. You won't be remembered. Your name will not be remembered. Your tombstone will not stand. Your place in the promised land will be gone. And just to prove all of this, because, of course, anyone can say something about 300 years from now. None of us are going to be there to test whether or not this word is true. And so, verse 3, God gives an immediate sign, something that will happen now, that the altar will split apart and the ashes on it pour out. As we look at Josiah, and by the way, you can read about Josiah and him doing these very things in 2 Kings 23, verses 16 through 20. But as we, as we think about Josiah and this, this coming to cleanse the worship of God, I think we should remember what the Westminster Confession says about the Old Testament saints and the covenant of grace, God's covenant with his people. In Westminster chapter 7, we read of the Old Testament that God's grace, or another way to say that is the cross of Christ, the, the pardon that we have in our Savior, was, quote, administered by promises, prophecies, and other types, all for signifying Christ to come. Other types. Friends, Josiah is a type of Christ. He is the most faithful from the entire line of David. In some ways, he's more faithful than David ever was. Josiah in the Old Testament is the golden king. He's the most righteous. He's not perfect. He's a sinner. He makes mistakes. In fact, he, he, he suffers for some of his mistakes. But he is the most faithful of the house. And in that way, he is to point us ahead to Christ, who, the, the great son of David, is faithful over all his house, according to Hebrews. So as we see Josiah coming as a, a, a type of Christ to purge Israel's worship, we are given a warning about the worship which we have in our own day. Christ will someday come, and on the day of his return, he will judge the worship of all men, women, and children. We don't usually state it that way, do we? We, we talk about sin, but there's behind all the, the sins of the wicked is that they don't glorify and enjoy God, the one living and true God. They don't repent and fall before him. 
They don't worship him and him alone. Behind most of our sins is an issue of worship as well. Making an idol out of something or someone or perhaps ourselves. And so we should warn, we should take this warning from Josiah of Christ when he will come and judge. One author puts it like this, Christ will forever wipe out from among his people those who serve the Lord in appearance only. Their names will be wiped out. What a, what a grave warning that you might worship in church every Sunday, but who, those who serve the Lord in appearance only, their names will be wiped out. Out. We see this in Revelation chapter 22. Let me read a few verses from there. Revelation 22, beginning in verse 6. Then the angel says to John, These words are faithful and true. And the Lord God of the holy prophets sent his angel to show his servants things which must shortly come to play, come, uh, take place. Behold, Christ says, I am coming quickly. Blessed is he who keeps the words of the prophecy of this book. And the angel said to John, verse 10, Do not seal the words of the prophecy of this book, for the time is at hand. He who is unjust, let him be unjust still. He who is filthy, let him be filthy still. He who is holy, let him be holy still. I think I skipped over the, the, the wrong verse there. Uh, no, no, I'm sorry. Continue in verse 12. And behold, Christ says, I'm coming quickly. My reward is with me to give to everyone according to his work. I'm the Alpha and the Omega, the beginning and the end, the first and the last. Blessed are those who do his commandments, that they may have a right to the tree of life and may enter through the gates into the city. But outside are dogs and sorcerers, sexually immoral and murderers and idolaters, and whoever loves and practices a lie. See there the son of David who is coming to purify and to purge. This is very, very important. And it's important for us to reflect on 1 Kings 13 and ask, if the priests and the bones of former priests are being burned, on the altar that you worship upon, who is left to intercede for you? I think that's part of God's point here as well. If you're coming to an altar to, to seek uh, to be right with God and the sacrifices are to be brought by a mediator to stand between you and God and plead your cause, but your mediators are being consumed as part of God's wrath, then you, the people, what hope do you have? Of course, we only have hope as we come through the mediator who sacrifices himself. But when he returns, he will judge. And he will judge those who rejected his form of mediation. Well, we also see the apostate's response. I'm using that word apostate. Uh, we're going to get into that word a bit more in a couple of weeks in the Sunday mornings, but just simply stated an apostate is someone 
who has been part of the church visibly and turns away from the true religion. That could be someone who made a profession of faith, came into the church, and now rejects the very things they claimed at one point. It can also include children born in the church who are raised under the true religion and who in time turn away from it. Here we have Jeroboam as, as an example of an apostate, right? He's the king of ten of the tribes of Israel. He was called by God to lead his people, and he led them away from the true religion, away from the word of God. How does he respond to this threatening prophecy? We see rejection of the word of God. As soon as he hears it, he doesn't even show a little discernment. You know, if, if a wise person heard that God was going to do these things and that God was going to give a sign, this altar is going to crack. Maybe a wise man would say, start the clock, 15 minutes, let's watch this altar. Let's see what happens. But Jeroboam doesn't do that. He immediately stretches out his hand and says, arrest that man, and look how God responds to this. A hand raised against God can never stand. He immediately is struck. Is it leprosy? Is it a severe form of arthritis? There are various theories, but that's not the point, is it? God makes it so he can't use his hand. It shrivels and it causes pain and he's disabled from using it. And it leads him, it leads him to seeming repentance. Notice that Jeroboam never confesses sin, never asks for forgiveness, doesn't even directly seek to turn to God. He only seeks the prophet to ask God to change the situation and not his heart. That's the epitome of false repentance, isn't it? Uh, a shallow and seeming type of religiosity. Uh, an attempt, really, to buy off God. That's what verse 7 is showing. The minute he gets what he wants, oh, I'll reward you. Let, let's, let's agree to disagree. Come back to my house. I'll give you money. I'll, I'll make it look like we're now friends. We can be friends without me repenting. That's what he's doing. And so often that's what we do in a false type of repentance as well. I want to think about that more, but... First, just to notice the prophet's final words to Jeroboam. He declines Jeroboam's uh, false sense of pardon, right? He declines because if he went, it might imply that God and Jeroboam are okay after all. But he will not go. And he also gives a clear, important message about how important it is to God that he listened to God. This is what we're going to pick up with more, Lord willing, next week. But he says, God commanded me. What's the implication? Well, God has commanded you things too, Jeroboam. He's commanded me not to eat with you and to go home a different direction. What a what a unnecessary set of commands. Surely God doesn't care about whether you really go home using the same highway, whether you... Uh, really eat with someone along the way or or not what what a what a pointless set of commands from God, but that's the point, isn't it? 
Jeroboam, you have a very clearly important set of commands from God. And one of those is repent from the wrath to come. And another of them is worship God in the way that he has said to worship him. And so if this prophet will take it so seriously that he takes different roads home, he's saying to Jeroboam, you also ought to take all of God's law this seriously. It's the final critique of Jeroboam, and he clearly misses the critique. Well, we think about this false type of repentance, and we should, we should take this as an important warning to us. In 1 Timothy chapter 4, listen to what Timothy warns the church. This is something he's warning uh, those who have made a profession of faith and are part of a visible church today. He writes, now the Spirit expressly says that in later times, that's us, right? We're, we're later times. He says, in later times, some will depart from the faith, giving heed to deceiving spirits and doctrines of demons, speaking lies and hypocrisy, and notice this, having their own conscience seared as with a hot iron. What happens when you sear something with a hot iron? It, it no longer feels the way it's supposed to feel. A seared conscience is one that isn't tender and doesn't respond the way it's supposed to. Our conscience should hear the word of God and the law of God and repent and cry out to God. A seared conscience hears the word of God and doesn't, doesn't even flinch. Like Jeroboam. Doesn't even seem to have flinched. Not even a second thought about this judgment to come. We need to be on guard lest we have that kind of seared conscience as well. One commentary puts it like this. Many try to satisfy God's demand for repentance by offering some sort of religious activity that is less painful. They will not break with their sin, but they will make a donation to the church. They will not repent, but they attend services for a while. And of course, we could come up with a lot of other things too, other than church attendance and, and offering, right? There's so many ways in which we can retain our precious little sins that we think are hidden away and so secret from everyone but us. We want to hang on to those with a seared conscience, but I'll go on a short-term missions trip maybe, or maybe I'll um, get, go work at the soup kitchen on Thanksgiving. What a great way. I'll show what a truly religious person I am by doing that. Right? We can come up with any number of other things. Things that are good, they're good, but they're not repentance. And they're not true relationship with God. 1 John 1.9 tells us the only way that we can escape the wrath of the Son of David when he returns, and that is if we confess our sins, we will find him faithful and just to forgive us our sins, and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. 
Kevin DeYoung makes a point in a, a wonderful book, which should be in our church library next Sunday. Um, the art of turning. The art of turning from sin to Christ for a joyfully clear conscience. The title's longer than the book. I think it's like 40 pages long, the book, not the title. Um, but he makes this point about 1 John 1, 9 and that. He makes the point that John does not write, the apostle of love does not write, if we confess our sins, he is faithful and merciful to forgive us our sins. Although he is merciful, isn't he? And he doesn't say, if we confess our sins, he is faithful and loving to forgive us our sins. Although he is loving in forgiving us our sins. But John writes by inspiration, if we confess our sins, he is faithful and just. The son of David will have perfect justice. That means he will come in wrath or he will forgive having taken the penalty on himself. Kevin DeYoung writes, God does not say your sins are no big deal. Never mind. He says your sins deserve an infinite punishment, but that punishment has been met out on my son. So as we, as we hear about this account of Jeroboam, first we should learn that we must listen to the word of God and not deviate from it or excuse it. We're going to see the danger of deviating from God's word more next week. But we must learn that. And we must listen to God's word. And when we have not, we must repent. Repent and turn to the Son of David now before it's too late because he is returning. The Son of David is returning. Oh, that he would purify our worship and hearts now and not purge us away then. Let's pray.